Jodcast. Here's one I made earlier with Christina Smith. The Jodcast, IMC 2012 Special Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Christina Smith and this month our extra show is a little bit special. Um, We're bringing you an episode from the International Meteor Conference, which was held on the island of La Palma from the 20th to the 23rd of September this year. In the show, we are bringing you interviews from astronomers, some professional and some amateur, who presented their research at the conference. We have interviews covering different aspects of meteor showers, sporadic meteors and fireballs, as well as information about the International Meteor Organization itself, um, the Roque de los Muchachos Observatory and astrotourism on the island of La Palma. As all of these interviews were recorded on location uh, where we were unable to use our studio, there is some background noise present. Joining me now is Paul Rogermans, who was one of the founding members of the International Meteor Organization. Can you tell me a little bit about the International Meteor Organization? The International Meteor Organization is the grouping of all people involved in meteor work, professional and amateurs worldwide. And we investigate mainly in observational work, analyzing work, and standardizing observing methods around the world. Further, we have a lot of contacts with professional institutes that use our data, like NASA, uh, ESA. All these people take data from IMO. Okay, and each year you have this conference to bring everybody together. Can you tell me a little bit about the conference? The conference, is, in fact, is older than the IMO. IMO was founded partly by people who came to the conference as a kind of uh, annual meeting of amateur astronomers. But in '88, when the IMO was founded, we simply took over in the charge over this International Meteor Conference and became simply the International Meteor Conference of the IMO. Was there any reasoning for choosing it to be in La Palma? Does it move around every year? The purpose is to move around because if we stick to one place, we always have the same people in advantage to coming to the conference. And as we are uh, amateur-minded, we must take into account amateurs must be easy to reach the conference. Travelling around is a must. Next year, uh, it's already fixed. Next year, we come together in Poznan, Poland, where the IMO has uh, an agreement to connect the International Meteor Conference to the meteoroids conference by the professionals at the same place and really when the IMC ends the meteoroids conference starts that makes it possible for professional and amateurs to participate at both conferences at a minimum of cost stay at the same place and uh, just have more interaction between the professionals and amateur world but I think from about this IMC the program was one of the best we ever had it's on volunteer basis so we don't ask anybody to give a lecture but if 60 people make a presentation then we are before the choice give the 60 presentations some as posters some as oral presentations or simply refusing and so far we never refused any presentation unless it is too low or questionable quality otherwise by principle we don't do like at professional conferences that we do not allow certain people to present something because they have already a presentation we don't put a limit there's no numerous clauses on presentations or participation there's there's absolutely no limit that if somebody wanted to come along and as long as they had work of sufficient standard then they would be allowed to present it 
Yeah, that's what we try to do. And this, IMC is a little bit victim of, of its own success, as we are now with more than 100 people above our capacity to host all lectures in three days and an excursion. Now we must think how to deal with that. If we are more successful, more people are going to come. Maybe we must introduce parallel ses sessions. Maybe we have to do excursion before the IMC and use IMC for the main purpose, the lectures, and have a small walk or so the Saturday out afternoon something that i found quite interesting is how how much of the organization is um is amateur astronomers and people doing this research sort of off their own back or in in their back garden with their own equipment has this always been the case has always been the case and uh, let's say in the beginning it was more primitive as meteor work for some reason was chosen by amateurs for the low cost aspect you simply need an armchair and good eyes and patience and a pencil and paper was enough. Later, people uh, bought a, a tape recorder to record the data. And in recent times, people who can spend a few hundred euro can set up a, a video camera, have an old computer that can collect the data. And the programs are available by IMO, so the people don't need be, to be a computer expert. Just get all the data, all the equipment uh, installed by experts from IMO, and they can set up a complete network of cameras in their garden. That's a new aspect, and the results from these networks are amazing. We still do the visual work too, because it's the only way we can connect with the past to see how was a meteor activity 50 years ago. We have visual observations from 50 years ago, 25 years ago, and now from today we try to calibrate a new technology, radio and video uh, observations, to see if we can uh, have a continuous statistics on meteor activity on long term. I think it's brilliant. I think it's, it's amazing how much can be done in, in the different areas. If someone were wanting to get involved in the IMO and become a member, is it easy for them to do so or do they have to be a member of a society? No, we are a very open society. So even participation at IMC doesn't require to be IMO member. IMO membership is open to anyone who simply fills in the form. There's no godfather necessary, no recommendation necessary. You pay 26 euro and you fill in the form and you're for one year IMO member. You get the journal six times a year. It's a journal about 250 pages uh, a year, which is uh, used by many professionals to publish articles. It's also put in the ADS from Harvard and NASA, uh, where you can find all the articles back. And beyond that, uh, you have the full support from the IMO team. In case of questions, you need technical assistance. That you are IMO member or not, you will always get the help. Oh, that's brilliant. There's that support available for, for people who are wanting to get involved or wanting to get involved more. Well, thank you very much for telling us all about the IMO and the IMC. I'm here now with Serko Mullo from AKM in Germany, and he just gave a really interesting talk at, at the uh, conference today. First of all, I'd just like to start with, can you explain a little bit about how meteor storms and how meteor showers actually happen? Well, I mean, typically, um, um, what is the difference between an ordinary night where you just see a few meteors and a meteor storm or meteor shower is, um, yes, an ordinary night, you have maybe a bunch of three or four or five meteors an hour, but um, at certain times of year, um, you have more activity. Um, we have a meteor shower or in some cases even a meteor storm and they all have the same origin. So the origin is some comet which left a dust trail um, somewhere in the, um, um, in the solar system and once the Earth is entering this dust trail then of course we see more of these particles entering the Earth's atmosphere and so we see more meteors. 
Although that, that's the difference between a meteor shower or even a meteor storm. When you are very close to the center of such a dust trail, then you see a real meteor storm. An ordinary activity, which you have um, a few meteors every hour from every direction. Okay, so it's, it's formed by a, a comet just having left a trail. Exactly. When the meteors sort of interact with the atmosphere, do they happen sort of all the way through? Do they tend to just be on the outside? Well, I mean, uh, what we see is... Um, just a very short streak of light, uh, which typically lasts about 0.3, 0.4 seconds, uh, so very short. And um, such a, a particle which is entering the Earth's atmosphere is, is very small. So it's typically just um, a fraction of a gram up to a gram at most, so a few millimeters in size. And, of course, this is burning up completely high up in the atmosphere. So what we see is um, actually the meteor at an altitude of about 100 kilometers. And after um, a few fraction of a second, everything is gone. The, the meteor, the meteoroid, so the original particle is, is completely disintegrated, nothing is left. You've been doing lots of work with observations. Yes. How do you actually do observations of meteors? Because I mean, you don't know exactly where they're going to be. Okay, I mean, the old style um, observation is visual observation, which I although I do myself because it's a big fun. You just uh, go outside, um, look for a dark site and uh, take a chair or something and then watch the sky and count the meteors. And uh, what we have started about 20, 25 years ago is to use video cameras. Uh, so um, if you take a very sensitive video camera and simply point it to the sky, you have fair chances to record meteors. So they are a little less sensitive than your human eyes. Uh, so typically you see more meteors uh, when you do visual observation. But the advantage of a camera, of course, is that it can run for hours, for days, for months, and it can, in the end, collect many more meteors. Well, of course, you do not know um, where in the sky a meteor will suddenly show up, but that's, that's simply by chance. So you point a camera somewhere, and you will always have some meteor which cross your field of view, and you have many more meteors which go left or right or above or below your field of view. So when you're actually doing the observations, do you have specific places where you go to observe, or do you just sort of do them where you happen to be? Well, I mean, typically um, we have these automated camera systems which are installed, uh, for example, at the houses of the amateurs who contribute to this network. Um, so they are typically fixed, and it's not really that we choose a perfect site, astronomical sites, but it's really where, where people are living. Um, they're installed on their balconies, they're installed on the roof, sometimes even uh, near city centers, which is, of course, not the best site for astronomical observations, but it's, it's fairly okay for meteor observation. And um, in special cases, like if we have a specific meteor shower which is visible only at a very specific time, um, like the Draconids last year, of course, then you have, a, have to have a look at the weather map and then decide maybe on short notice whether you stay at home or the, whether you take your equipment, put it into the car, travel a few hundred kilometers miles and uh, put it then somewhere, hopefully under clear skies. But this is really the exception for, for special events. So quite a lot of the data comes from amateur astronomers. Definitely. That is, um, most of the meteors uh, that we are collecting nowadays are collected by amateurs who are doing the everyday profession as, uh, I don't know, physicists, chemists, computer scientists like me, or um, so not professional astronomers. In your talk, you were talking about measuring sort of magnitudes and uh, 
measuring the fluxes, so the, the number that you get. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I mean, um, the interesting point is when you see the meteors, of course, they have different brightnesses. And if you simply count the meteors, that give not really gives you an idea of how many, how many particles there are, because there are so many factors which are actually influencing your count. On the one hand, the most important factor is the limiting magnitude. So what is the faintest visible star that you can see? Or translated to meteor, how faint a meteor can be that you still see. Another aspect is, of course, the size of your field of view. Either you have a, 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 a tiny, small field of view and you will miss many meteors, or the other extreme is if you have an all-sky camera, then you can record the full sky, of course. A third um, factor is um, the direction, the observing direction, whether you point your camera at the north, to the south, to the zenith. And um, the calculation, um, what we have done, is really to try to incorporate all of these conditions to really incorporate into the formula where the camera is looking at, how sensitive it is, how big the field of view is, and then to normalize this observation that we can compare data from different cameras and join them, but also to compare um, showers under different conditions, like showers which are springtime showers or fall showers, showers of different velocity and so on. Do you get quite a difference between the spring and the autumn showers? Yes, of course, there are differences. I mean, I'm talking about the sporadic background that I mentioned first, the meteors that show up every night, and where we typically have low activity in the springtime and higher activity by a factor of two or three higher in fall. And then we have these major meteor showers, and they have specific dates. So the most well-known showers are the Perseids, which are active in the mid of August. Although well-known are the Geminids, which are even a little more active than the Perseids, around mid-December. But typically, I mean, the weather in mid-December is... Uh, is cold and clouded, so they are not that, that famous as a Perseids. And you have the, the Orionids, which are active uh, around uh, 20, 22nd, 23rd of October every year. And, um, well, these are uh, most of the most strongest showers. For so the meteor showers, they are not equally s- spread over the year, but you have certain, certain times where these show up. And the typical months are mid of August and um, then early December and most of the, of the autumn time. Okay, and um, there's, there's one that's coming up fairly soon, which is quite exciting. You said uh, end of October. Yeah, by the end of October, so the Orionids activity starts typically around, say, October 15, 16, 17. They are really getting strong by about October 20, and then they have quite a plateau of activity for about three or four, up to five days. So between October 20 and 25, you have a fair chance um, to observe one or the other Orionid. What's always important is that the radiant, so the, the point in the sky where the meteor apparently seemed to come from, that this radiant is high above in the sky. And for the Orionids, obviously, the radiant is in northern Orion. Uh, so the best time to watch the Orionids is always when Orion is highest above the horizon. So this is um, the right time. And, of course, um, beside the time, what's always important is to find a dark side because um, you can try to observe them from the center of the city, but it's, um, you will see many, many more meteors if they are outside, if you're outside in the rural area and have dark skies. Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. I'm joined now by Philip Novoselnik and Dennis Vida, who have just given a really interesting talk on a possible new meteor stream. So first of all, how, how do you detect new meteor streams? Uh, we have some 30 cameras uh, across the Croatia, and then uh, we reduce data, do astrometry, photometry, and, and everything, and in the end we have we do triangulation between a few stations and we get the orbits of these meteoroids in space, in the solar system. 
So then we, we use uh, one software that is called the UFO Orbit that is used for uh, orbit visualization and then we can uh, plot all these uh, radiance on the sky map and then we search for some dots grouped together. It means there is maybe some uh, new stream. We found one and uh, analyzed it and uh, showed that to present it uh, at this conference. How is it that something like this would go undetected? This part of astronomy is very interesting uh, because there are a lot of undiscovered things and we are afraid that, uh, well, in a few years the American CAM system will clear everything out and find everything that uh, can be found. Uh, so we are just uh, rushing to discover everything before uh, they come. It's not difficult to d- discover new things uh, when you know the, the method and you have the data. And you need sometimes you need to think outside of the box uh, because uh, mainly we think that our um, meteor stream, this new meteor stream, went unnoticed because it was uh, so the, the, the full circle has 360 degrees, and uh, when it starts again, it starts from zero. So uh, between, if, if anything is between 360 and uh, zero or something like that. Uh, this can go unnoticed because most of the softwares are searching from 0 to 360 and not between. So if it's going just over the boundary, then it, it, it could yeah. well not be picked up. So is there any ideas about the source of this potential new meteor stream? No. Uh, we, we searched for uh, in some databases for uh, periodic comets and compared the orbital elements of the periodic comets uh, with uh, our new stream and we found nothing. So parent body of that possible stream is still unknown. Maybe it is a part of Southern Delta Aquarius. It, it is a question to be answered in the future. Okay, so does it have a name, this new, new meteor stream? Uh, the, the problem is it is between the borders of three uh, constellations. And uh, when, new, when a meteor stream gets a name, it gets uh, a name from a constellation. So the Perseids are in the... Perseus uh, constellation. So, and this one is on the border of uh, three uh, constellations. So, and uh, no major stars are there. So, we had to look for some really faint star, and I, I think it will be called August Yota uh, Cetids or something like that. That's really exciting. Um, I mean, you guys have told me that you are at a at a university. Yes. Uh, we are on the same university uh, studying computer engineering at the University of Osijek in, in Croatia and we just finished uh, the first year of our studies. Just to say that we, we started in a uh, astronomical society Anonymous uh, in Valpovo uh, and we are the members uh, since 2005 or something like that and there we started actually to, to deal with all of this and with do real astronomy. So, uh, well, this is just a uh, just just a part of what we are doing. We are also we're, a few years back we were discovering supernovas uh, and such. We discovered seventeen with the with the help of the data from uh, La Sagra Observatory in Spain. And uh, well, you can do really everything. This is just one part that we are doing. Uh, we're just uh, we are also participating in education of uh, younger students, and uh, we discovered this new stream. Uh, on the Vision School of Astronomy, which was about a month ago in, uh, in, in Croatia with the high school students who we were teaching them how to process the data and introducing them to science. Oh, well, that's absolutely fantastic, and congratulations, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. 
I'm now here with Dr. Johan Kero from the Swedish Institute of Space Physics, and he just gave a really interesting talk on meteor head and trail echoes. What are meteor trail echoes or head echoes? Well, Earth is constantly bombarded by dust particles from space. So uh, about 100 metric tons of material come in each day. And each time a small grain of sand or stone or whatever comes into the Earth's atmosphere, it heats up due to the collisions with the oxygen and nitrogen and whatever is in the atmosphere. And uh, in these collisions, electrons and ions will be created. And if you have a radar system, which means a device that transmits radio waves, uh, some of this radio energy will be bounced off the electrons created in this interaction. And uh, the meteoroid, meteor head echo is uh, caused by a dense cloud of electrons traveling with the space debris, the space uh, stone, the meteoroid, uh, into the atmosphere. And this is the head echo. Okay, so they sort of collect at the front? Uh, yeah, well, the, uh, you can think about it as a free flow. So uh, uh, the meteoroid is a, is a small grain and, and uh, it's coming in with a high velocity and, and there sits the uh, ionospheric constituents. And uh, as soon as this, uh, this meteoroid collides with uh, the atmosphere, uh, an ion and an electron will be created. But, of course, this will very soon dissipate but the new collisions appear, so there will be a cloud of electrons that is just in front of the meteoroid, similarly to the mosquitoes on the windscreen of a car. Okay, so that's the head echo. So what's the difference between that and a trail echo? Well, uh, as soon as, as these um, collisions have taken place, the electrons and ions will repel each other, and they will start moving out and collide with the atmosphere again and again and again and slow down to normal thermal speeds, uh, which is not the very, very high speed of the space particle. And uh, uh, in this way, they will form a, a column of ionization that is just left behind the, the meteoroid. And that column of ionization will drift with the local wind speed. And uh, having a radar system, you can get an echo from this column as well. And then you can find out, for example, the local wind speed or how large the particle which came into the atmosphere was. So what sort of wavelengths do you actually observe in? The, the, the radio wavelengths uh, that we use to study the head echoes is, uh, well, sub-meter wavelengths usually. So something like a, a VHF or UHF system uh, having um, a few hundred of megahertz uh, frequency. While to study the trails, you need to have a little bit of a longer wavelength, rather, S several meters wavelength, so uh, let's say a, a 30 to 50 megahertz system. Whereabouts do you actually do your observations from? Are there special stations set up for this? When I study the meteor head echoes, I need to use a very high-power, large aperture radar systems. So uh, there are uh, a number of such uh, radar systems installed in different places of the world, and uh, one of those is the Middle and Upper Atmosphere Radar in Japan, which I have been using for two and a half years uh, while doing a postdoc in, in Japan. And another radar system is, is called the European Incoherent Scatter Facility, located in northern Scandinavia. And, uh, well, that is closer to where I live now. So, so these, are, these are individual facilities, or, or do you have sort of a group of them that all correlate their data? Well, they are individual facilities, uh, mainly not used for meteor studies, but for 
ionosphere and atmosphere. And such kind of data is, is uh, gathered into a, a global database that can be searched by anyone. But to use these systems for meteor studies is generally done by special programs. So I, as an individual researcher or a team of researchers, have to apply for observation time. And as soon as we get observation time, we can go there, have a campaign, take our data, and, well, do what we do. And, and uh, that data set is, can then, of course, be shared with anybody, but it's on an individual basis. Okay, so when you're actually sort of doing observations, because, I mean, obviously, you can't really predict where you're going to see it, how, how long do you have to actually observe for to get data that you can use? With the MU radar, uh, we get uh, something like 500 to 700 uh, meteor events per hour in the morning hours of, of the day. It depends very much. It's a, it has a diurnal dependence. And this isn't this isn't during a meteor shower or storm. This is just a normal day. Yeah, this is a normal day because uh, the head echo detection technique it's it's very sensitive to small size dust particles. So even if the dust particle is uh, 0.1 millimeter in size, it can still, at an altitude of 100 kilometer, produce a detectable echo. <laughs> it's really, really tiny, tiny grains that we are observing. And uh, less than, I would say, 10% of these belong to meteor showers. So the rest, more than 90%, they are just sporadic, which means that they belong to the solar system dust cloud. And uh, they might have belonged to meteor showers previously, but uh, they are so old that uh, they have been perturbed and uh, their orbits have been more or less uh, distributed in the solar system so that we can't really no longer link them to their parent body. Statistically we can say that uh, this and this part of the sporadic complex as it's called uh, might have been caused by this and this family of comets but we can't really link an individual meteoroid to its parent body no longer. Well it's incredible that something that a meteor that small can produce such detectable echoes well yes uh, this is why this um, it's necessary to have uh, the high power large aperture radar to to see them so the the kind of radar systems that I'm talking about is have transmitters of the one megawatt peak power uh, capability so that's like a 1000 microwave ovens and uh, of course uh, the transmitted power is only transmitted in very short pulses so the, the, the power usage is not as high as a thousand microwave ovens but the, the, the amount of power that can be produced for a very short duration is uh, comparable to that and then of course you need to have a, a large aperture to receive your signals in case of the MU radar you have 475 antennas distributed in a 100 meter circle so, so this is quite sensitive systems well, thank you very much for telling me about the work that you've been doing. Thank you. I'm here with Gerhard Trollshagen from ESA, and he just gave a talk about the Space Situational Awareness Program and NEO and a fireball database. So, first of all, can you just explain what the NEO and Space Situational Awareness Program are? Well, ESA started the so-called Space Situational Awareness in 2009, and the purpose is to find out what is going on around the Earth in the near-Earth space. And it has three segments. One is called surveillance and tracking, 
and this deals with uh, the knowledge about satellites and space debris, so space junk particles. A second one deals with the space weather, so to see the interactions of the sun, solar storms and the radiation levels in space, for example. And the third segment, and that's where I'm mainly involved in, is the near-Earth object segment. So we want to know how many asteroids and comets are out there that could be a potential threat to Earth. So it's a way of mapping the objects that are out there so that we know what is actually out there. That is correct. First of all, you have to find them. And then, once you found an object, you have to calculate the orbit. And only that allows you to predict, is this object a potential threat to Earth? Could it impact Earth? How would you actually go about finding them? This is normally done by ground-based uh, telescopes to find these objects. And right now, about 9,000 near-Earth objects uh, are known. 9,000? That is correct. 9,000 of various sizes, about uh, a little less than 1,000, is bigger than one kilometer. And about another uh, 1,000 is smaller than 30 meters, and the others are in between. The estimation is that an object larger than about 30 meters can do serious damage when it hits Earth. They are big enough to really destroy cities and do some other type of damage. And there are some models, some estimations, that there are about half a million to one million that are larger than uh, 30 meters. So if we know something like 9,000, there's still a lot of work to be done. Finding them is the first step. Yeah, I, I can see why it's very, very important to know where these objects are so we can evaluate them, I guess, before it became a problem. That is correct. Once the orbit is known, normally what is done by some experts who uh, cooperate with us, uh, mainly a group from Pisa in Italy, they calculate the orbits for the coming 100 years. It's not really possible to do it for a longer time in the future, but we think for now that is enough. And then for each one of these objects that is known, they calculate the orbit for about 100 years in the future and then find out is there a certain risk that they collide with Earth. Wow. So you can actually calculate that far in advance, like 100 years. How do you actually go about doing that? Well, that is correct. You have, when you start, uh, you have a certain uncertainty in your orbit, and then you propagate by a Monte Carlo procedure using splitting one object into many, many small ones and following each one of them. And then you can see, is there a certain probability? You just follow Newton's law and include some perturbations. You account for if the objects pass close to another planet and uh, you count for the deviations. And this you can do quite accurately, but not exactly, for about 100 years. That means in the end you will never get an exact solution, but you get maybe uh, a result like, oh, the chance is one in a thousand that it could hit Earth. If it hits, you normally will know the time when it does it, because it has to be at the same position in space as Earth is at that time. It's incredible that you can predict them that far in advance using these mathematical and statistical techniques. So, yeah, I mean, that's... That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I could add, uh, if I might, that right now, so when we have done this, out of these 9,000 near-Earth objects, so a near-Earth object is defined as an object that is in some orbit that comes up to about 45 million kilometers to the Earth's orbit. To the orbit, it doesn't mean close to the Earth. And out of these 9,000 that we know right now, there are about 335 that have a non-zero probability, which is very, very small, but larger than zero, that they will collide with Earth within the next 100 years. 
well, it's quite nice to know that there aren't all 9,000 potentially interacting with the Earth's orbit. Yeah, but there's still 335. It's quite a lot for the next 100 years. <laughs> That's correct. But again, most of all... Uh these chances are very, very small, typically one in tens of thousands or a hundred of thousands. So it's nothing really to worry about. There's none known object uh, that is on a direct collision course with Earth right now. So you are also developing a fireball database. Um, can you explain what this database is and what it's going to contain? That is correct. I mean, the main aim is to find these near-Earth objects when they are in space and not when they are colliding with Earth. But if you come towards smaller sizes and the smaller you go in your particle sizes the more there are and the numbers increase drastically so normally the lower limit is about a few meters of objects uh, that you can detect in space but if objects get smaller and smaller there are even more and they because there are so many they will hit the earth but normally then they burn up completely in the atmosphere and depending on their size if they are of millimeter size they are called meteors they are nice to watch but if they get bigger some tens of centimeters to a meter there are very bright fireballs they can be as bright as the sun for a few seconds or definitely brighter than the moon and these are seen by people worldwide and uh, they are concerned and it is uh, therefore we also decided to include in our work not just the big neos which are out in space but also fireballs that did impact the earth itself just to complement the, the size range towards smaller sizes as well so you sort of get more of a full coverage of, of sizes that is correct i mean there is a one reason is uh, to be a service to the general public to be aware if some bright fireball happened, what was that, if we get inquiries at the space agency and at this new segment. A second point is if they reach something like a size of a meter or a few meters, because they are so fast, if they impact the Earth's atmosphere with, let's say, 20 kilometers per second, which is a typical velocity, they have an enormous amount of energy. And when they burn up, they tend to explode, and this energy is released. It is just the kinetic energy, and this is equivalent to a small atomic bomb. I mean, many people don't realize this, but um, an, uh, let's say an object of 7 to 8 meters in diameter has the equivalent energy when it explodes of the Hiroshima bomb. And uh, this might not do any damage because this will happen at some tens kilometers up in the atmosphere. But people will be concerned if you would see a nuclear explosion. And so that's also one reason we want to be aware. Of course, ideally, we would like to see it coming. But so far, this has happened only once that an object that in the end burned up um, was detected before in space. That was in, in 2008, uh, an object that in the end exploded over, over Sudan and then dropped some meteorites. So therefore we try to get a complete coverage for various reasons. One is to know what has happened, to be able to predict it, and then also to have a database to extrapolate flux models um, to what smaller sizes so for scientific purposes, but also maybe to help uh, meteorite searchers try to find them by giving the information where the fireball was observed. So this fireball database will be available for, for people to access for free? Yes, it should be freely available and online available. But of course, uh, first the data has to be put in. And our aim is um, to collect information on all fireballs brighter than a certain magnitude, minus 10 for the experts, so only the real bright ones. And somehow we need to get information. We don't have no sensors ourselves 
to collect the information. So we count on cooperations and support from other scientists and people who observe those to make this information available to us. So if someone were to um, see a fireball, they could, they could report it? Yes, I think we still have to establish the exact procedure. Very often also first they should report it to a locally existing fireball network and then we contact those people, how many reports did you get and try to include it into our database. The exact procedure still has to be established. Well, thank you so much for talking to me all about this. I'm here with Paco Arcana, who's a PhD student at UCM Madrid, and you've given both a talk and you've got a poster presentation here. One is on the draconids, so could you tell me a little bit more about them? Yes, well, uh, last year, in 2011, we had a draconid outburst, the 8th of October, and we saw a particular event of this periodic shower, of this periodic meteor shower, so we recorded it from a Sierra Nevada observatory in Spain, in southern Spain, and we got several meteors, and we are now uh, measuring all the images and analyzing all the data to determine uh, where do they, their meteoroids, their particles, come from. We also, we also launched a balloon with a scientific payload, uh, one of our video cameras, to record meteors. Unfortunately, the... PC sat down when it was still too low to record meteors, but we plan to launch another balloon to observe the Geminites, that is probably the best meteors hour in the, around the year, and uh, we are working now on the next mission. Okay, so for the balloon, you, you sort of send it up. How high up does it go? Well, it goes up to 35 kilometers, so when we go above jet stream, the camera is, is stopped shaking, and we can record meteors not as if we were in, a, in an airplane, but it's good enough, and it's a low-cost mission if you compare it with an airborne mission that costs uh, 100,000 euros. We are working always with uh, low-cost devices and low-cost. We are focusing on low-cost so <laughs> because of the shortages and the cuts in the budget. Yeah, so for the sort of observing that you're doing using the balloon, do you have to sort of follow the balloon to collect the data? Is it stored there? Do you have to catch it? Yes, it was, it was an adventure because uh, we, we launched two balloons, one to get up there and the other just to balance the weight of the, of the box, just to stay in the atmosphere, above the, above the atmosphere, long time enough to record the whole outburst. But the cut uh, mechanism for the, for the balloon failed, so we have to track the balloon more than 300 kilometers, and it was about to fall over in the Mediterranean Sea. But you managed to get it. Yes, we managed to get it, and we managed to see that the PC uh, malfunctioned at, uh, after 30 minutes of the launch. That's a real shame that you didn't have all the data for all of that time. Yes, we have the data, but the, the, the box is spinning so fast that we only see the moon and the stars. Well, we know that the camera works at very high altitude. We know that if we have uh, recorded the moon, we will record a very bright fireball. So we are now thinking on the next mission, and I think we are going to have the very first uh, meteor recorded in a balloon-borne mission. Well, I wish you loads of luck for that. You have a poster here, and this is to do with detecting fireballs. Is it, is it a different method that you're using to detect them? Well, the, we are detecting fireballs because our observatory is inside a very big city, Madrid. So we have a very heavily light-polluted sky. So we can only record fireballs. 
but we are taking advantage of this. So we are only recording fireballs and we are studying this, uh, this kind of population. We can say that we are studying the, the massive part, the massive slope of all the distribution of particles. It is particularly interesting because uh, most of the mass that falls uh, into the Earth could come from this uh, massive tail of the distribution. And also the most important for the human beings are the larger ones. So studying the medium-sized ones, we can try to understand how many uh, large ones are there in the solar system. Is there any, any difference sort of in structure between um, like a normal meteor and a particularly bright meteor? Is it just that it's larger or it just interacts more, breaks up? Yes, well, here in the conference we have had a very interesting uh, talk by Giri Borbica, and he told us that uh, raconids are made of grains and they are all glued. So we can understand that in the very early solar system, we, have, we already have grains that come from wherever, probably from a very evolutionary large star, and they have get glued while all the planetesimals were forming and were in an accretion process. And when we are watching meteors, when we are studying them, we can see how do the solar system form when we are looking to their light, because we can see how large were their grains, how, how is this glue, because... Uh, Meteors coming, or meteoroids, that is the name of the particle, coming from the outskirts of the solar system, are richer in organic material than the ones coming in from the middle, from the inner belt, from the asteroid belt. So do these, do these ones come in the same sort of, um, of streams, like the, the trails from comets? Yes, we have had also the, the theoretical point of view that uh, people also study how uh, do the meteors fall in our atmosphere just to calculate the orbit in the solar system. So it's, it's, it's very interesting because if you see a, a meteor with an unknown parent, you know that, she, that there is a comet or an asteroid that is uh, crossing our orbit, but you can't see it. Oh, fantastic work. Thank you very much. Thank you. Joining me now is Sheila Crosby, um, who is a starlight guide on the island of La Palma. So, first of all, what's a starlight guide? Uh, it's a tour guide that specialises in astronomy. We, all, um, we went on a special course that was about 60% astronomy, 40% tourism. That sounds like a really cool, a really cool job. And later on, you're going to be taking us around the observatory of um, La Roque de las Muchachos. Can you give us a little bit of information about the observatory? Uh, yes, it's one of the three main observatories in the world. It's actually the place on the whole planet with the best seeing. Well, it's also lower than the other two main observatories in Chile and Hawaii at uh, 2,400 metres, a little under 8,000 feet. So that's much, much more comfortable for the human beings, but slightly less good for infrared astronomy. And there's now 14 international telescopes up there. I think we're up to 21 nationalities of having telescopes there. That's such a wide variety of telescopes on, up on one mountain. So what sorts of instruments are actually at the observatory? Well, we have the biggest optical and infrared telescope in the world, Grand Tacan, with a 10.4-metre segmented mirror. We've got the biggest robotic telescope, the Liverpool, with a 2-metre mirror. And um, there's a little one called SuperWASP, which is terribly unimpressive from outside, but it's actually discovered 86 extrasolar planets in only a few years of operation. 
And then we have um, an absolutely massive Cherenkov telescope, which is the biggest single mirror in the world, the Magic Telescope, with um, 55 feet across those mirrors, but not of the same quality as an optical telescope. And among the other telescopes, there's the William Herschel, which was for many years the biggest in Europe, still doing excellent science with a 4.2-metre mirror, 13 feet. There's, uh, between them, that one and the Isaac Newton telescope have produced the data for well over 3,000 astronomical papers by now. Wow, that's so much science that's going on all in one place, and to have that many in such a, a relatively close area is incredible. And um, Is there quite a lot of scientists who actually stay there full-time, or do they come and do their observations and then leave again? Well, there are a group of scientists who stay there as their main job, Um, Some of them do observations for other people and, of course, they do part research, part looking after telescopes. But the bulk of the observers get time given to them by a committee and they come one night, three nights, very occasionally a whole week and do their observations and then they take the data home and they're working with the data for about a year before they publish usually. So the data is private for a year and then it's in the public archive. And there are people who do scientific papers just looking in the archives without needing to do fresh observations. So even when they close the telescopes, they'll continue to be productive, which I think is really cool too. And the Isaac Newton telescope was the first one to open on the rocket. It's been going there for 28 years, so that's quite some archive. Of course, the instruments are much newer than the telescope. It's one of the marvellous advantages of a ground-based telescope. It's a lot easier to change an instrument on one telescope at the Roque than it would be uh, on the Hubble. The Isaac Newton's main instrument these days is the wide-field camera, which is a 32-megapixel camera. It takes the sort of pictures you see in those posh coffee table books. And the Liverpool also have a public archive of... Um, well, they have a hitchhiker camera that does a fairly wide-angle wide, wide angle image, so you can they, they have a very pretty archive. The Liverpool also does um, some of, a percentage of their time for school kids. Schools can sign up to the scheme and get um, a request a particular image... It's oversubscribed, but if they're in luck, in about three weeks they get their very own picture of Jupiter or uh, the Whirlpool Galaxy or whatever. And this is so good for getting kids into astronomy, particularly with the light pollution being so terrible in the UK these days. That's absolutely fantastic. I had no idea that something like that existed. And, and yeah, given the, the clear skies here, that you can get some absolutely beautiful images, I'd have thought. <laughs> absolutely fantastic. Um, there's local bylaws about the light pollution... A surprisingly large amount of it is just positioning the light inside the street lamp correctly so the light goes down instead of up. So the telescopes that are up on the mountain, do you get many people actually coming to visit? So obviously you have the visiting scientists, but but do you get many other people visiting? Yes, uh, members of the public can sign up for a visit via the IAC website. You have to sign up in advance, but it's free, and you make your own way up to the observatory and the guide will meet you and give you a short talk and take you around one of the telescopes. At night time, there's a barrier nobody's allowed actually onto the site because even car headlights, even side lights, will spoil observations. Some of the telescopes are so sensitive, particularly the magic telescope, the, the huge gamma ray telescope. So there's a lot of restrictions in place on, on the lights that are used up on the site. Well, the Isaac Newton telescope was built without any windows to the offices to make sure there was no light going out. Everyone complained about that because it feels like you're in a nuclear bunker. So when they built the Herschel, they actually built all the windows with very carefully made blinds that you have to pull down at sunset. All the telescopes, everywhere there's a window, there's a blind on it for after sunset. 
Uh, since I've been doing this job for three years, and I used to work at the Rocky as a software engineer for the British telescopes, I'm currently writing a guidebook to the observatory, which should be available in, de- in November. OK, well, we'll post links to, to your website about that in the uh, show notes. So thank you very much for, um, for giving us the, an overview of the, uh, the observatory. Thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. I'm here now with Anna Castaneda from the Cabilda de la Palma. And um, one of the things that was talked about in the opening speeches was astrotourism in La Palma. And this is a concept that I have never really come across before. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about it on the island? Of course, <laughs> astrotourism is uh, a tourism uh, that is developed into astronomy. What we are trying to do is to uh, make from La Palma a destination specialized in, in astronomical tourism. For that, we are uh, we have a plan among three parts: the Spanish Ministry of Canary Island Tourism Area and also the Cabildo Insular Tourism Area. So this is a three years plan, and we are in trying to introduce specialization on La Palma, on this area, because we think La Palma has everything we, we can demand to, to make a, a special type of tourism. Uh, we have a, a very important astronomical center on the Roque de los Muchachos, where there are installed a lot of uh, professional telescopes. And this is open from the, um, 1985, and nowadays the island people, the Palmeros, they have the idea that La Palma has to develop in that line. And also the tourist enterprises are thinking this is a special type of tourism that could give to the island also a trademark different than the rest of the canaries. And uh, of course, La Palma is not a destination of uh, sand and beaches. It's more nature, more mountain, more hiking destination. Also, it's a very special place where you can see the stars. One of the things I was quite interested in is uh, a new telescope and astronomical sites for amateur astronomers and, and tourists here. So there's a plan to do that, I believe, according to the, the announcements. Yeah, well, this plan I was talking about is a plan that has introduced the astronomy into the tourist enterprises. I mean, we are trying to make a thematization, and um, the owners of the houses are learning how to use the telescopes, all the apparatus to, to see the skies, how to explain the stars and uh, galaxies and um, every object you can see at the night. Also, when we have some restaurants, they have an astronomical menu. Also, these houses, the hotels, they are trying to to install a lot of elements that uh, give the impression this is an island with a different type of tourism. But we think one more important project is this one, uh, the, the Astronomers and, and Tourist Observatory. Uh, we have a plan and hope next year will be finished. 
to install a tourist and amateur telescope on a place called Mendo on the island so that we can offer to our clients and to the amateurs a place to go at night and to see the stars and with uh, some telescopes in different ranges. I mean, one bigger for the amateurs and the other one for tourists. Uh, Within this will be uh, a point of difference also with some other uh, tourist destination so that we can promote this kind of tourism. Well, I think that's fantastic because obviously, especially for the amateur um, astronomers on the island, I mean, something like that would be would be brilliant. And you said that there are actually going to be, well, the plan is that there will be telescopes there for them to use so they wouldn't necessarily, especially tourists, have to bring their own to utilise the dark sky. Yeah, well, they, they can bring their own telescopes, but also will be provide a guided tour with explanations just with the eyes mm-hmm. you can see the the sky at night but also with some faraway stars through the telescopes and um, this for sure is a different kind of tourism um, another thing that you were talking about earlier is the astronomical viewpoints yeah we have a plan to install one in each village on the island there are already viewpoints at daytime, but at night time we have looked for specific dark points where you can go and see the stars. And there we have styled table with explanation about most important uh, constellations you can see from there, and another object that points to the to the Polaris star, so that you can make uh, um, a better situation of the sky in that point. And all around the island we will have uh, this kind of uh, astronomical viewpoints and also uh, some other astronomical viewpoints but for astronomers or for um, amateurs on the top of the island where it's very complicated to observe next to the to the uh, professional astronomical observatories because we cannot go with the lights at night but will be a little bit separate so that on the top will be very very clear always and that guarantee a good observation also and also we have uh, a list of hiking paths we Nowadays, we make at night with the moon trails and the stars trails. They have different names, and uh, they will be signed also on the on the same signs we have now for the day excursions. We will have a night sign for the night excursions. Well, all this is really really interesting with the, and it's really really good for especially for your astronomers on the island here already and those coming to visit. So, yeah, thank you very much for stopping to talk to me. To you. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed hearing all about the various aspects that were going on at the conference. Uh, it was it was absolutely fantastic to be there. So all that is left to say now is thanks to Paul Ruggermans, Sirka Mulo, Paco Acaño, Johan Kero, Gerhard Rolshagen, Philip Novoselnik, Dennis Bieder, Sheila Crosby and Anna Castaneda for the interviews. And special thanks to the Cabildo Insular de la Palma, the International Meteor Organization and Astro Travels. The editors were Christina Smith, Philippa Hartley, Indy Leclerc and Nick Wrigley. The producer was Christina Smith. Until next time, jot on. (laughs) 